Welcome to Highbrow. My name is Midalei. If I sound a little raspier than usual, it's because I'm super dehydrated. I have been known among close friends and family as a cactus. I don't like to drink water. Or I'm, actually, I'm going to amend that statement. I don't remember to drink water. I actually am one of those people who thinks water tastes good. I know some people don't think water tastes good. I'm not one of those people. I like water. I just can't remember to drink like eight glasses a day. And today, especially, all I've had, all I'm having is currently this iced coffee. And here, ooh, ASMR. So if I sound a little parched, that's why. And if you're wondering why I haven't drank water, even though I'm clearly aware that I need it, because I got to finish my delicious iced coffee first. One drink at a time, folks. <laughs> oh, and also this episode, I will be discussing sexual assault, rape, and sex scenes as indicated in the title. So just take that for consideration. So for today, let me explain because this is episode two. And, you know, the first episode was like a revisiting of a previous video I did, which is why it was a little bit choppy here and there because I literally took the audio from that video and spliced it with new information. And one really crazy thing I realized is that like I speak differently now than I spoke a year ago. I used to speak with this customer service voice on YouTube. I wasn't really aware of it as I was speaking, but now I think I'm a lot more comfortable talking in front of the camera and into a microphone, and so my natural voice has bled through, and it is like an octave lower. So that was a little interesting <laughs> to re-listen to. This week, I thought rather than diving into one particular subject, we could do a more easy listening experience and focus on a couple different things that have been relevant in the culture lately. So if you follow me on Instagram under Gremlina, I sometimes post articles that I'm reading into my stories because I do read a lot of articles and I'm subscribed to a lot of substacks and a lot of those substacks are also just like newsletters recommending articles. So I've read a lot in the past month. One article that I definitely want to talk about is All Hail the Girl Failure by Royce and Lanigan and it was published on ID in February. And if you don't know what a girl failure is, it's basically what it sounds like. She is the foil to the girl boss. She is, um, in the words of Royzen, someone who embraces her L's. She's a little intense. She has never in her life successfully read a room. She doesn't have any savings, but she does have significant credit card debt. She watches a lot of TikToks about Sylvia Plath's fig tree analogy, lying face down on a crumb-covered bed, but has never read The Bell Jar. She's well-versed in the art of a situationship. She's well-versed in the art of rejection, more generally, and can make it kind of funny now, even. 
She identified too much with that one line from Antihero. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. (laughs) She might have been going somewhere once, but lately she's not sure if she's going to get there. She feels largely unmoved by this reality. If 2022 was the year of spiritual and cultural rot, then the girl failure was the torchbearer, a figure emerging from months spent rotting at home to give the world not 100% exactly, but at least like 50% on a good day. I feel like we have experienced a repackaging of the same concept over and over again across the years. For me, girl failure is just another way to say a femcel or uh, a female manipulator. They're all kind of adjacent terminology to describe a woman who doesn't have her life together. According to this article, the first tweet to coin the girl failure was posted by Rory at Rick Shaddy, and they wrote, Enough girl bosses, I need girl failures. Just an absolute loser of a female character. More women who suck. Followed by five exclamation points. And that was posted January 28th, 2023. And it went semi-viral. It got 2,000-something replies of people just replying with, girls, female characters that they thought of as girl failures. So some of the women that appeared in the thread were Lydia Tarr from the new movie Tarr, Elaine from Seinfeld, Pam from The Office, um, all of Anna Ferris's characters. She seems to be typecast as someone who plays girl failures pretty often. All of this comes out because women are just tired of always optimizing, in the words of Gio Tolentino. If you think about it, before quarantine, women were bombarded with imagery of girl bossery, of like, Madame President, uh, the pressure to own a business, the pressure to make Forbes 30 under 30. To be a feminist meant you had to be succeeding in a male-dominated world, and if you were not, then you were bringing down the whole cause. Like, that seemed to be the rhetoric before the pandemic. And then during quarantine, the whole idea of optimizing in a health way started to take off, like going on hot girl walks or embracing the whole clean girl aesthetic, which meant journaling daily, waking up at 6 a.m. to do Pilates, drinking green smoothies. For the last 10 or so years, women have just been expected to be productive in any way possible. So it's really not surprising to me that all this discourse about being a femcel and being a feral girl and being a girl failure and even being a trad wife, all that has taken off the ground because people just have a tendency to swing to the other side of the pendulum when they feel pressured by society to be a certain way. In the article, Royce and Lanigan's point of view is that representing girls who are terrible is a net positive. She writes, When our media and online platforms reflect more than just who we want to be, but instead who we actually are a lot of the time, it makes us feel less alone. So my opinion is that I think it's a really positive thing to have a whole range of female characters being represented in media. I don't think that can ever be a bad thing. But I think when real women and real girls start to idolize these messy female characters and aestheticize them, that can just encourage women to embrace self-destructive behavior rather than looking for a solution to their problems in life. Failure 
is not a state of being. It's a phase of being. (laughs) But I think that when we categorize a certain female character as being a girl failure, like her failure is the dominant aspect of that entire character. I'm going to explain an example here. So Lana Del Rey, she is a real woman, obviously, but the way that people talk about her online, specifically people who idolize her uh, first couple albums, I feel like they see her as a character and not a person. And they see her as this character who is really reckless and who has these toxic relationships with older men, who does a lot of drugs, and who is essentially someone who is off the rails. And this persona is idolized by a lot of young adults and teenagers who are in that messy phase of their life and who feel seen by this woman who allegedly lives like an alternative lifestyle. And I can admit that when I was a teenager on Tumblr in 2012, I was obsessed with Lana Del Rey because her music spoke about topics that weren't spoken about in a lot of music. And I felt that even though I couldn't relate at all to what she was saying, I knew in my heart that she was cool because she was doing it like no one else. But this was 2012, 2013, when she wrote these first couple albums. And then as her career has moved on, her music has really developed. And there are a lot of other themes. And she's more mature in the topics that she speaks about. And she's also been happy for a good number of her songs, which is not something she ever was for the first couple albums. Like the album Lust for Life, it was a relatively positive album. And it got a lot of backlash from a certain group of her fans who didn't want to listen to this happy coded music. The point is she's had this journey, this life journey that is normal for a real human. But a lot of these coquette girl blogger types only look at the beginnings of her career. They don't consider that trajectory. They kind of only focus on Lana Del Rey as this caricature that is doing a lot of drugs, that loves Diet Coke, that is in terrible relationships with way older men and who are sexualized, but in a way where they feel like they're empowered. It's a whole mess. A lot of these girls are aiming to create caricatures of themselves, not embrace life in its non-aesthetic way. There was this one TikToker, and I don't know who this TikToker was, so even if I did, I wouldn't put her on blast for this, but it came up on my Tumblr dashboard, because yes, I still use Tumblr, but it was a screenshot of her TikTok, so her username was cut off. But on it, it's like a video of her, and the text reads, There comes a time in every young woman's life when she has to choose Lana Del Rey, coquette bimbo core, or femcel deftones eyeliner bitch. And one of the commenters said to this, or we could be people. And yeah, I think when you are so concerned with categorizing your own identity with certain terminology like girl failure, femcel, coquette bimbo core, you are disallowing yourself to develop like a real human and live like a real human life. And I don't think this is like such a crazy problem. I think it's one of those things where a lot of young women who are participating in this trend, they're still really young. And it's something that you eventually grow out of as someone who 
kind of experienced that, not in the same way, because when I was a teenager, we weren't categorizing ourselves to the extent that people categorize themselves now. But my Tumblr was very much designed with an aesthetic mindset. I had the black and white photos. I had the Lana Del Rey mood boards. I had the Marie and the Diamond collages. It was to give off a certain identity that wasn't necessarily me, but was how I wanted to be perceived by other people. So bottom line is, I think in TV shows and movies and, you know, in the media, it is important to have the quote unquote girl failure representation because if all women were just strong and successful, then it doesn't represent what the real woman experience is. Because yeah, of course, there are going to be some women who are just extremely successful Forbes 30 under 30 type of people, but there are a lot of women who aren't. And if we want to create good TV, good movies, we have to cover the range of human experience. What I think is the downside is just having these types of labels and simplifying complex characters into being one thing, which ultimately doesn't serve the narrative and completely undermines the point of the show or the point of the movie to begin with. Sidebar, this also reminds me of the whole good for her meme and how I think some people obviously use it ironically, but some people really just stand these complex female characters like Amy from Gone Girl and Florence Pugh's character, I can't remember the name, um, in Midsummer, Midsomar. The specifically the Midsomar example. People love to say good for her because, uh, spoiler alert, in the end, she kills her boyfriend who is a piece of shit the entire movie. But she ends up joining this white supremacist cult. And that part of the story was just glossed over to fit this good for her narrative where she gets to, you know, have revenge on this terrible man. But it ends up being a disservice to the whole story by glossing over such a pivotal part of the ending. I think it's also worth considering who gets to be a girl failure. A lot of these girl failure examples tend to be skinny white women. And what does that tell you about what kind of women are allowed to have complicated stories? And what kind of stories are relegated to people of color and to fat people and physically disabled people. And speaking of girl failures in the media, I don't know about you, but I've seen so much talk about girls, the TV show making a resurgence across my social media platforms. Maybe that just tells you like the age range of people that I follow <laughs> because I think girls came out 10 years ago or so and I never watched girls. But uh, most of the people re-watching the show are women in their 30s who watched it the first time when it came out in their 20s. And the whole idea for girls, if you're someone who hasn't watched the show, it's a comedy drama series that was created by Lena Dunham and Judd Apatow. And the show played into and poked fun at the idea of the lazy, privileged millennial. In the first episode, Lena Dunham's character, Hannah, is cut off by her parents and then declares that she may be the voice or at least a voice of her generation. The show takes place in New York City and it's kind of like a time capsule in the same way that Sex and the City was a time capsule. 
So in Girls, the protagonists have graduated into a recession. Apps like Instagram and Tinder were starting to take off. And it was a good representation, allegedly, because I, I wasn't here in the 2010s, but a good representation of New York City in the 2010s through the perspective of a white upper middle class woman. And that's actually why I got so much backlash because the protagonists were notably unlikable and the fact that it was just like an extremely white show. A lot of critics pointed that out early on and uh, Leslie Arfin actually addressed this lack of representation in a really tone-deaf tweet. She said, what really bothered me about Precious was there was no representation of me. And then she deleted it and apologized because it did not land like she was hoping. And for anyone who doesn't know what Precious is, Precious was a 2009 drama about a fat lower class black woman. So yeah, it was just not a good response at all. Another big controversy around the show, which I think was actually not deserved, was the nudity specifically around Lena Dunham's body. Lena Dunham is a very controversial figure. She has a lot of haters and a lot of them are justified in why they hate her. I don't want to get into it, but I do think it's unfair to go after her body. And specifically one example that got a lot of heat was that in season two, Dunham's character has a weekend affair with the guest star of the series, Patrick Wilson's character. And people were really upset that a guy who looks like Patrick Wilson, who is conventionally attractive, would ever fall for a woman who looks like Lena Dunham. So a lot of that uh, discourse was very misogynistic. So because I was curious why so many people were starting to watch the show again, I was looking into why we rewatch shows to begin with. And there was this one writer, Ali Volp, who wrote an article for Vox called What Rewatching Old Shows Teaches Us About Ourselves. And she interviews marketing professor Crystal Russell. And Russell, background information, published a paper in 2011 where she studied 23 people on why they rewatch media. So uh, disclaimer, it was a very small sample size. But what she found was that a lot of people don't actually watch strictly for nostalgia. Instead, they rewatch because the experience of watching it at an older age allows them to appreciate the present instead of yearning for the past. For example, if you watch a show first when you're 20 years old and then you rewatch it when you're 40 years old and you have a stable job and you have kids, rewatching the show will bring up memories of what it was like watching it when you were at a different point in your life presumably a worse point in your life. So a series like Girls, which is about 20-somethings who are just living chaotically, watching that could be comforting to 30-somethings who have grown from that struggle and who are no longer undergoing the chaos of their younger years. Okay, pivot to other show news. I'm sure a lot of you have probably already read the Rolling Stone expose on The Idol. But if you haven't, just a brief summary of what was going on. The Idol is this upcoming HBO show that was created by Sam Levinson, The Weeknd, and Reza Fahim, and is now directed also by Sam Levinson. And if you don't know who Sam Levinson is, he is the creator, writer, director of Euphoria. That's like his baby. And he's a very controversial figure because of Euphoria, but especially now after this scathing article came out. 
So the point of the idol is that it follows this pop superstar named Jocelyn, who is played by Lily Rose Depp. And she is navigating the seedy underbelly of the music industry and falls into a relationship with Tedros, who is played by The Weeknd. And Tedros is an owner of a popular LA nightclub who secretly runs a cult. And it's inspired by NXIVM. To this day, I don't know how to pronounce that. And Scientology. The goss is that production has been all over the place for the last, like, year or so that they've been trying to get this show off the ground. And to this day, we still don't know when HBO is actually going to release the project. So here's a bit of the timeline. Um, In April 2022, the previous director, Amy Simetz, suddenly exited with roughly 80% of the six-episode series finished. And the reason comes down to the fact that she came to the job with none of it in order She arrived on set seven weeks before the show started filming, and she was given half-finished scripts, a finale that wasn't written yet, and a tight schedule. So she had to write and direct at the same time, and her assistant also had to chip in and help write, even though her assistant had no um, credited writing experience. And then after she finished 80% of the series, HBO ended up scrapping the entire project, which cost about 54 to 75 million dollars um, with plans to rewrite and reshoot the whole thing. All the sources in the article remained anonymous, but one source told Rolling Stone that they had decades-long experience in Hollywood working on a crew and they believed that throwing away Simetz's version of the idol was probably, quote, the most egregious I've ever witnessed in this business. Which says a lot because Hollywood is a very wasteful industry. And what is pouring salt into the wound is that HBO's parent company, Warner Bros. Discovery, slashed hundreds of jobs last year with plans to cut $4 billion in costs across the board. And last summer, HBO and HBO Max had a restructuring and laid off 70 people. So clearly the budget is not budgeting properly because why does Sam Levinson just get millions and millions of dollars? Meanwhile... Everyone else is, like, racing in the Hunger Games. The article did note (laughs) a couple ways that the idol tried to save costs, though. And probably the funniest one was apparently The Weeknd performed his After Hours Till Dawn tour show in L.A. last September. And the production filmed part of it for the show. So at this concert, Lily Rose Depp appeared in character as Jocelyn on stage in front of the crowd wearing this gauzy white dress and delivered a monologue about how difficult the past year has been. She said, Tonight is incredibly special because I have the opportunity to introduce you to the love of my life, the man who pulled me through the darkest hours and into the light. And then she introduced the weekend on stage. I think if I witnessed that, in the audience, I'd be so fucking confused. I'd be like, are they dating now? (laughs) Like, this makes no sense to me. Um, But you know, I guess you got to do what you got to do to save a million (laughs) dollars. So the major question that everyone had is why are you changing this show? Reports have noted that apparently the weekend felt the show was heading too much into a quote, female perspective. 
Um, and four sources say that Levinson ultimately scrapped Simetz's approach to the story, making it less about a troubled starlet falling victim to a predatory industry figure and fighting to reclaim her own agency, and more of a degrading love story with a hollow message that some crew members describe as being offensive. The weekend also was apparently unhappy that the story focused so much on Lily Rose Depp's character, and he wanted to tone down the cult aspect of the storyline and pivot into something else entirely, dropping the feminist lens through which the show was being told as a result. Lots of red flags. Uh, apparently, there were a bunch of sex scenes that were written in the new script by Sam Levinson that were never filmed, but they were like leaked through this Rolling Stone article and it was just really gross to read. And I hope Lily Rose Depp is okay. She has told interviewers that she enjoyed working with Sam Levinson. So I'm happy that that was the case. But I don't know. He just like gives me such icky vibes, especially reading about Sydney Sweeney having to tell him to cut scenes of her being topless in Euphoria. And actually, if you've seen Euphoria season two, you know that Sydney Sweeney spends a lot of camera time topless. So the fact that she had to cut down the number of topless scenes and there were still that many that made it to the final production, that's insane. So I think Sam Levinson is a menace to society. And I say that in a negative way, like in parentheses derogatory. And I don't think he should be given this much freedom and this much money to just do whatever he wants because clearly he's not viewing anything from the lens of someone who actually wants to tell moving stories about women. One of the scenes that went viral on... Okay, let me rephrase that because the scene was not filmed, but there was a scene that Rolling Stone published that was in the script and this screenshot of this part of the article went viral because it was just so wild but there was a proposed scenario for lily rose depp's character to carry an egg in her vagina and if she dropped or cracked the egg the weekend's character would refuse to quote unquote rape her which sent depp's character into a spiral begging him to quote unquote rape her because she believed he was the key to her success and the reason that the scene was not filmed was not because someone was like um Maybe we should reconsider why we need this scene to begin with. It was because the production couldn't find a way to realistically shoot the scene without having Lily Rose Depp physically insert the egg. So this brings me to just like another discourse related but not super related about sex scenes in the media, sex scenes in TV shows and movies, and whether or not they're necessary. In recent years, there's been some articles getting published about this generation of puritines, which is the portmanteau of puritan and teenager. A puritan is a term used to describe a theoretical type of extremely online youth that is incensed by any display of sexuality on the internet, and it's used derogatorily by millennials. I honestly don't know how legitimate <laughs> puritines are. Like, I don't really know how many Zoomers are sex negative allegedly like there have been studies that have come out that say that zoomers have been having less sex compared to older generations but 
I mean, it makes sense because people are online and indoors more than any other previous generation. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that Zoomers are not having as much sex. Like, I don't think celibacy is necessarily in line with sex negativity. Also, this writer, Rebecca Jennings, she said something that I believe in as well. She says, what we're actually talking about when we talk about, quote, the teens today is only the most extreme views, the ones that rise to the top of TikTok, Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit that get the most engagement. Painting them all with one sweeping brush isn't helpful because the vast majority likely have much more nuanced beliefs. And I agree with that. Just like by the way that boomers and Gen X used to talk about millennials, So I want to come forward and say I'm a zillennial. I have thought about it. (laughs) And I've experienced some of millennial culture, but I've also experienced some of Zoomer culture. And so I really feel comfortable situated in the middle of them. But I remember when I was like in elementary school or whatever, there were constantly articles coming out in the Washington Post or the New York Times or whatever complaining about how millennials are ruining everything. Like millennials are ruining the economy. Millennials are ruining golf courses. Millennials like only eat avocados and blah, blah, blah. And those were all just painting millennials with this sweeping brush. They were also just factually untrue. There are plenty of millennials who don't have an addiction to avocado and who are not lazy and privileged. So I feel like when we talk about Zoomers in this kind of way, it's regurgitating the millennial discourse that millennials hated to begin with. Also, what's really important to note that I don't feel like comes up in the pure teen conversations is that Zoomers are the most tolerant generation so far. They are more open to diverse genders, diverse sexualities and polyamory than previous generations and they are also more informed on what consent is and more willing to engage in those kinds of conversations and this writer ej dickinson she actually wrote an article for um rolling stone two years ago in 2021 called are sex negative puritans actually taking over the internet and she hypothesizes that the zoomers who are quote-unquote puritans have become this way as a result of spending their entire lives negotiating murky spaces of the internet. And Zoomers, as a result, have been instilled with a stronger understanding of consent and dangers of sexual exploitation more than any other generation and are thus more hyper-aware of sexualized languages and themes infiltrating spaces where it might not be appropriate. So I don't necessarily think that Puritans are a major phenomenon that is taking over the world. But I do think that social media is really dangerous in proliferating sex negativity talk or just keeping teenagers and young adults uninformed about sex. And a lot of it just has to do with censorship. So TikTok especially has really, really strong censorship around specific language they don't deem is appropriate for all ages, which has led a lot of TikTok users to use really silly euphemisms and code names to discuss uh, sexual topics. And not just sexual topics, like really any kind of topic that isn't um, allowed under TikTok's guidelines, even if you're coming to it from an educational perspective. So 
One notable controversy is a couple months ago, there was this one TikToker, he was a guy, and he made a video sharing his sexual assault experience, except instead of using the words sexual assault, he used the word mascara, because in some TikTok circles, people were starting to use the term mascara as a stand-in for the word sex. And Julia Fox who is this celebrity and she's like a, she's very (laughs) active on TikTok. She commented under it being like, somehow I don't feel bad for you. And that went viral to an extent among, at least among like my Twitter universe, because people were like, oh my God, Julia Fox like doesn't care about male survivors, etc. While another group of people who I think were more reasonable were like, how was she supposed to know that mascara means sexual assault or sex so julia fox ended up making a comment again saying like she had no idea that mascara meant that and she you know regretted saying what she said case closed while the drama is over i feel like the problem still stands because clearly people are still discussing these topics on tiktok they're just using code words to talk about them but we're still talking about it so the censorship only just makes it more confusing and makes the conversation sound less serious, which is a negative thing. If someone is talking about being sexually assaulted, the words sexual assault hold a lot of weight and a lot of meaning. The word rape holds even more weight and meaning. Like these words are visceral and they cause a visceral reaction to people listening for a reason. So when you replace these words with words like mascara or grape, These words don't have that weight and we'll like listen to these TikToks and it won't come across as serious. Does that make sense? Language is really powerful. I mean, I find myself having to do this all the time with YouTube, like jumping through hoops so that the algorithm doesn't flag my video because I talk about eating disorders, for instance. And one of my videos that I made a long time ago, which I'm kind of upset that they took it down, it was my video on the Tumblr girl. And in that video, I did talk about the culture of 2014 Tumblr and how it was very self-destructive and a lot of people had eating disorders that they would talk about and a lot of people talked about being mentally ill and being suicidal and because I discussed these topics even though I felt I was discussing it from an educational perspective my video got shadow banned like I got a notification from YouTube saying that no one who wasn't logged into YouTube could watch that video and it virtually disappeared from search engines I made that video a long time ago. It was upsetting when I got that notification, but they literally flagged it like a year later. So it didn't burn as much. But just like the idea that no matter what kind of nuance you bring into a discussion, these algorithmic sensors will just remove anything you post because it has these specific buzzwords that they don't think are appropriate for the general public. And Going back to sex education, I think by not allowing these types of words to be said on TikTok and YouTube and other social media platforms, it prevents young people from accessing sex education that they would not be necessarily getting from school or from their parents or from their peers. Like I got all my valuable sex education from the internet before TikTok and before Instagram, YouTube, and Tumblr had all these bans on them. Back in like the 2010s, the internet was really 
uh, No Man's Land. It was the Wild West. For better and for worse, like, there's some really seedy things that came up on my Tumblr, especially as someone who liked to use Tumblr in public. It was like a jump scare anytime I saw something remotely sexual come up on my feed unannounced. But I feel like it was a net positive for my experience because I was able to learn so many things that my friends didn't want to talk about and that my school definitely didn't want to talk about. And when you don't have the tools to discuss sex freely and in an educated way, you come up with ideas that are not necessarily true, which is what I think informs a lot of puritine mindsets. One of the big puritine talking points as of recent is whether or not TV shows and movies should feature nudity or sex scenes. And I think this conversation is kind of nuanced because there are shows that I think do not need the explicit sex scenes like Euphoria. And then there are shows that clearly benefit from explicit sex scenes such as sex education. And I've talked about this in a video before, but my issue with Euphoria is, let me backtrack, both these TV shows are about high schoolers. And I think the main difference for me is that I see Euphoria as a TV show about high schoolers for adults. I don't even see it. Like that's literally what they advertise it as. But I see sex education as a TV show about teenagers for teenagers and adults. And maybe that's a hot take because it is a very explicit show, but I would show this show to a teenager if I gave birth to a child and had one. (laughs) I have always thought about Euphoria as a shock value show. And when I made a video talking about how I didn't like Euphoria, some people commented and they were like, well, this is the real experience for some high schoolers. Like I grew up in a high school where everyone was taking drugs and everyone was having unsafe sex, etc. And that wasn't my high school experience personally, but I think there's a way to show those things. Like if you really want to do a gritty show about, you know, fucked up teenagehoods, that's possible. But I feel like Sam Levinson was not responsible in the way that he did that. And for me, it was irresponsible because a lot of these storylines were unfinished a lot of these characters didn't really suffer consequences or there was no message to say this was not okay. For example, the character Kat, she was played by Barbie Ferreira and she's actually not coming back for season three, I think because of differences between Barbie Ferreira and Sam Levinson. Honestly, good for her. But Barbie's character, her whole thing in season one was that she was this fat girl with like low self-esteem and to raise herself up, she decides to become a sex worker, like a cam girl. And this is illegal, by the way, because she's supposed to be 16 in the show. So she's essentially producing child pornography. And nothing really happens after that, because she virtually doesn't get any storyline in season two. And that's it. And the way that they even filmed her doing this cam girl work felt empowering and I feel like it should not (laughs) have felt empowering because let's be honest there are so many teenagers who watch euphoria even though it's supposed to be for adults teenagers don't listen to that shit 
But even if no teenagers were watching this, I feel like as an audience of adults, we should feel really icky when we watch these scenes. That's what we should feel because she's producing child pornography. She's getting taken advantage by adult men. But Sam Levinson didn't frame it like that. And I think that is really irresponsible, straight up rancid vibes. And I'm ultimately really happy for Barbie that she doesn't have to go back to that set. Also, as I talked about Sydney Sweeney and how she was literally just like flashing her chest the entire show and how Sam Levinson wrote even more scenes for her to do that, it's just clear that he's so into this gratuitous shock value, gratuitous nudity, gratuitous sex that doesn't serve the plot whatsoever. Like there was no reason for Cassie, Sydney's character, to have her boobs swinging out every episode. (laughs) In comparison, sex education, like a lot of the sex scenes were pretty explicit, but it came from a more realistic point of view. So the teenagers were really awkward and they were kind of fumbling around and they had questions that they asked adults to help them with. And it promoted this companionship between Um, the son and his mom who's a sex therapist and promoted this idea of going to an adult if you have issues and being able to trust your family members and obviously there are like hiccups and the trust is broken because it's a tv show and we need some drama but for the most part it's about it promotes getting help if you don't understand things and I think that's a really important message There's also, like, lots of conversations about enthusiastic consent. Um, A character gets sexually assaulted, and I think the way that they handled her storyline was really good and really realistic. So I love sex education. And I think even as an adult, you don't feel creepy watching it (laughs) because the – it's more about, like, family and friend dynamics above anything else, which I think we can all relate to. And also (laughs) – the adults get their own storylines, and I really enjoy the show. I think the next season might be the last season, so I will be tuning in. And I know a lot of the characters have left, um, or I should say the actors have left. Like Simone Ashley was a supporting character or a side character in it, and she left because she's getting way more success on Bridgerton. So, you know, uh, that's a positive thing for her. But even so, It has been a pretty strong series, like, for all three seasons that I've watched it. In other news, or in related news, Penn Badgley, the actor from You, who was also in Gossip Girl as Dan, he released in a statement that he was no longer going to be filming intimate scenes. And a number of people thought he was being silly about that because his justification was that he wanted to respect his partner, romantic partner. His official statement to Variety was that um, it's important to me in my real life to not have them, them being sex scenes. My fidelity in my relationship, it's important to me. And actually, sex scenes was one of the reasons that I initially wanted to turn down the role in you. I didn't tell anybody that, but that is why. And the criticism, people who thought he was being silly was because people felt he was conflating on-screen sex scenes with real-life sex scenes when they are very different. Um, 
So I'm in an acting school. I've been in an acting school for like two years now, <laughs> which is something that some people know about me and some people don't. But I was given the opportunity to speak with an intimacy coordinator. And she was really cool and kind of broke down what the business is like, what the industry is like these days. Because beforehand, um, really up until the Me Too movement, sex scenes on production sets were not really safe environments. As an actor, you were kind of just expected to roll with the punches. If the director wanted something, you were expected to do it. And if you didn't do it, you could get blacklisted or just like fired from your job and not have that paycheck. If you wanted to be an actor, you weren't allowed to have boundaries. But because of Me Too, the aftermath for the industry is that now it's pretty common for intimacy coordinators to be on set. And if there isn't one, you can usually request one if you're part of SAG. But even then, like you're supposed to choreograph and negotiate anything that you want to do or don't want to do. You're supposed to have boundaries because all humans have boundaries. With that said, I don't think he's like unjustified in saying he doesn't want to do them because part of also having boundaries through an intimacy coordinator is being able to say, no, I don't want to be nude on a TV screen ever again. And people just have to respect that if they want to see him act. And something interesting that the intimacy coordinator told me is that usually like you can come up with something that does make actors comfortable. So if someone, if some actor is like, no, I don't want to make out with this person for this shot. You can come up with some kind of choreography that gives the same idea of a romantic connection without having it be that. So, you know, someone could kiss someone on the forehead or on the hand instead. And this coordinator, oh my God, I can't remember her name, which really bothers me. But she said, it's really important to have these explicit boundaries because if you're uncomfortable doing something and you just do it because you want to be a team player, it reads poorly on camera. Like people can tell you're uncomfortable. And she used the example of Harry Potter and specifically the scene where uh, Harry kisses Ginny. And she said it's like one of the most uncomfortable kiss scenes she's ever seen. <laughs> so with that said, it's like, if an actor clearly has these boundaries, it's really important to respect them, not just because we should be respecting human boundaries, but also like you're not even going to want to see something where an actor is forced to do something they don't want to do. It's going to look unnatural. It's not going to look sexy. And yeah, it's, it's not going to give what you want it to give. The last thing I want to talk about, though, is AI and specifically what I was exposed to a couple weeks ago was this deep fake ad. And if you don't know what a deep fake ad is, deep fakes are content where faces or sounds are switched out or manipulated. So there's a lot of um, apps online where you can download and you can basically switch out a person's face with another person's face. And it looks like it's is basically copying and pasting someone else's face onto someone else's video. So it looks like this person is doing something that they've never done. And obviously, the negative implications for that is when someone is making 
pornography and swaps the face of the actual adult film actor with someone who has never worked as an adult film actor. And it's it's non-consensual pornography. So this ad that I saw and that went viral was an ad where Emma Watson's face was pasted onto a sexually implicit video. Like the ad cuts off before anything gets crazy, but it's just like the way she's like looking up. Like it's really clear that this original video was a woman about to give a blowjob. And the ad was used to promote this uh, app store app that creates deep fakes. And the reason everyone saw it was because this app rolled out more than 230 ads on Meta's services, including Facebook, Instagram, and Messenger. Twitter user Laura Barton tweeted about this. Actually, this is how I found out about the ad. Now that I remember, um, it was because I saw this thread. But she tweeted, this could be used with high schoolers and public schools who are bullied. It could ruin somebody's life. They could get in trouble at their job. And this is extremely easy to do and free. All I had to do was upload a picture of my face and I had access to 50 free templates. Also, by the way, this app, apparently it was rated for ages 9 and up on the App Store. So I feel like that says enough of why it's unethical. In general, I think it's really scary what AI art is capable of. So another crazy thread that I saw on Twitter was that this one user, Alex Vilatis, went viral after tweeting an AI-generated image of four women and saying, over half of the top OnlyFans accounts will be AI-generated models secretly run by men. And another user kind of echoed that sentiment, tweeting, it is so over, with a gallery of four AI-generated photos of women in barely their bikinis. Okay, it is so over for women, I guess, because AI women now exist. I mean, is it just me or is anyone else afraid of AI? Maybe it's because I watched too much Black Mirror or maybe because I watched Ex Machina, but I cannot imagine wanting to develop some kind of relationship with an AI bot over a real human. And I wonder how common this actually is. Maybe like among the incel community, it's really common, but... There's just something very deeply disturbing and uncanny about these AI-generated images of people that don't exist. I mean, for the moment, like, AI art generation is not without its flaws. And a lot of the times you can tell when a photo is AI-generated because, like, the person will have seven fingers. (laughs) Or there's just something a little off about their bodies that if you look far away, you wouldn't be able to tell. But when you look up close, you're like, oh, yeah, why does she have a second ass? (laughs) But I guess I would say the opposite of an appeal, a detractor. (laughs) A detractor for me when it comes to AI is that AI, like, can't develop empathy. Like, they don't have that. Isn't that what the Turing test measures? They don't have it. And I hope that they never have it because that's also scary. But... There was this one New York Times opinion piece that was published back in 2018, and this MIT professor, Sherry Turkle, she talks about robots and chatbots that are designed to provide companionship. But these chatbots lack fundamental humanity needed to offer real empathy. But I guess 
for some people, it doesn't really matter because there's this one company called Replica Company and they market an AI chatbot as a friendship app designed to give users a place where they can socialize. And there's multiple options for how this bot should respond to you, but there is a romantic option. And one may wonder why we even need this. So on their website, this AI chatbot is supposed to help build better habits and reduce anxiety. There is also a Reddit thread because there's a Reddit thread for everything, but a Reddit thread specifically about this um, company and their chatbot services. And recently, people started speaking out on the thread because the replica AI bot stopped responding to sexual advances. (laughs) And a month ago, this one Redditor started a petition to the company asking them to bring that part of the interaction back. And uh, the comment, the thread is like full of comments of other users voicing their frustration online with many people saying that they feel lost or lonely without this uh, chat bot. One person shared, this is not a story about people being angry they lost their sexed bot. It's a story about people who found refuge from loneliness, healing through intimacy, who suddenly found it was artificial, not because it was an AI, because it was controlled by people. And then Italy actually banned the replica chatbot on the basis that the company was obtaining personal data. Italy's data protection agency said replica presents a risk to minors and to those considered emotionally fragile, but former users argue that the ban took away their one solace from the real world. And the reason that um, the agency obtains personal data is because that data is required for the bot to retain its memory of the connection it has built with a particular user. I think that there's probably a community of people who are just lonely and seek out AI chatbots to fill that void. And there's nothing like villainous about them. And then there's also a group of people who are like that Twitter thread who is posting about women are so over, who are literally just misogynistic incels and who are clinging to this idea of AI porn so that they don't have to actually talk to real women anymore. Which, you know what, that's great for them because honestly, I would not want any of those kinds of guys to actually ever bother a woman ever again. (laughs) So that's a positive. But It just does make me a little uncomfortable because we as a society are becoming way more antisocial than ever before. I don't have any statistics in front of me right now, but I do remember reading about how this generation of adults have way less friends than previous generations of adults, which is really upsetting. And I think while these AI bots can fill some void, they're not a proper solution because at the end of the day, it's not a human that's running it in the background. And there are limitations to what an AI can do for you on a human level. And I also think that there's a sanitation of an AI interaction with a person. For instance, like I've actually never used an AI chatbot, so maybe I'm totally wrong, but I assume that if you're annoyed with an AI, like you can just get it to stop annoying you in some way. Like you can like reprogram it or like it'll just like obey you when you're like stop talking to me versus when you have a conflict with a real human you actually have to tap into those 
conflict solving, problem solving skills to either continue that companionship or to end that companionship. And those are really valuable skills to develop and also an essential part of like living and being a human. So I think all this dependency on technology, not to sound like an old man yelling at cloud is <laughs> really scary and really negative for the development of human communication. Okay, not to end this episode on a pretty depressing note, <laughs> but I have nothing left to say. If you want to keep up with me, I'm also on YouTube under Mina Lay, L-E, and I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter under Gremlita, which is G-R-E-M-L-I-T-A. And I have a podcast Instagram page called highbrow.pod where I post um, just fun little archival magazine vintage things. So check that out if you're interested. Oh, also, um, if you have the time, please uh, rate and review the podcast. If you enjoy it, if you don't enjoy it, please don't leave me a bad rating. <laughs> um, thank you all so, so much. And I'll see you next Wednesday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.